Guys, please grab a seat if you're with us here. Welcome. Welcome at Tumby. Welcome those viewing online. Uh, today we are looking at John chapter 11. Can I encourage you right now, if you can, grab out your phone, grab your Bible, open up to John chapter 11. There goes the page. This is going to be a short sermon. <laughs> okay, I need to hold on to this. It's good to have the fans. John chapter 11. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read most of it to you. And it's a fair bit. It won't be on the screen, so I'm going to encourage you to listen or read along with what's in front of you. I'm reading from the NIV version. Um, and what I want you to listen for, I want you to listen for the conversations that happen, uh, particularly between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and Mary and Martha. I want you to listen to the theme of needing to believe. I want you to listen out for that. And so we're going to start John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There's a fair bit, so stay with me here. All right, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And this is the Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That actually happens in John chapter 12. So John, the author here, is just telling you a little bit about what's coming up. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there. Sorry, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you were going back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, he was a twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so we may die with him. So there's a fair bit going on here already. As we've moved out of John chapter 10 and we know the threat to Jesus' life, some of this makes sense in that context. And we continue, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in a tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I've lost my place. 
My brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And, the, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Um, when, Jesus, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been in there four days. I remember reading that as I was preparing in the King James Version. It says, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> There's a bad odour. He's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling council of the Jewish people. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. There's a fair bit in that. John chapter 11. A sign, remember, always points to something beyond itself. The seven miracles mentioned by John, or the seven signs mentioned by John, point to a greater reality. They point to who Jesus truly is. And this is the last of those seven signs, the last of those miracles in John's Gospel. The first sign, who remembers what that was? Turning the water into wine. The first sign revealed God's glory, revealed Jesus' glory, and identity as the God of creation and the Messiah, the one who was coming to fulfill the law. And this last sign, this seventh sign, this raising of Lazarus from the dead, again reveals the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, as the defeater of sin and death and the giver of real life, eternal life. And if you remember, John pointed out the first sign in chapter two, he said, this is the first sign. Then he pointed out the second sign. We've had to keep count of the next few signs and now we've landed at the last sign, the last miracle. So we wanna remember that John wrote this gospel so that you may believe who Jesus is. Looking at chapter 11, Jesus is continually focused on inviting people to discern what's happening so that they would believe. Let's have a look at just some of the passages I've read through. So verse 14, he said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Think about that for a sec. Remember Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he waited two more days, then he had a couple of days journey to get to Bethany and when he got there, four days in, Lazarus had been dead for four days and Jesus is saying, I'm glad I wasn't there for that because something's gonna happen now that's gonna help you believe, truly believe. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And remember, we unpacked this months ago, to believe means more than mentally agree with it. Believe means this is so true and so real, I'm gonna shape my life around this. Verse 40, Jesus said, did, not, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, here's this public prayer he gives. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the people here that they may believe. And then he calls Lazarus out of the grave. See, Lazarus was raised to life. People saw this, it was undeniable. And there was a decision that needed to be made by those who witnessed that miracle, those who heard the miracle, because news would have traveled fast about this thing. And people needed to make a decision. What do I do with this? Verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. 
And then verse 47, these are the, the high priests. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then we're going to lose the things that we think we have control over. We're going to lose our power and our position. We have to do something about this guy. And the story goes on that from that moment on, and Jesus knew it, because this started to rear its head in chapter 8, 9, 10 of John's Gospel, that when he went back to Jerusalem, when he went back to that area, they were out to get him. And what I didn't realise, and I, I, I read this as I moved into chapter 12, they were out to get Lazarus too. Early on in, in chapter 12, it talks about these same Jewish leaders are out to kill Lazarus, because here he is, he's this walking evidence of Jesus doing something unbelievable. And so Lazarus had a mark on his forehead as well. So it gets to the point where there's no denying that there was something unique about this Jesus of Nazareth. You couldn't deny it and you had to make a decision. What do you do with this man? Do I believe in him or do I reject him? For those established as the religious elite, those in power, Jesus was a threat. It was the Jewish people who had Jesus crucified. They used the Romans to do it, but it was the Jewish leaders, the, the religious people, the God-fearing people who had Jesus killed because he was a threat to them. But for those who were around in that day who just needed some good news... Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one of God. Or as John writes back in chapter one, he was God in the flesh. He was here with us. So when we go back to the very first miracle in chapter two, look at this, chapter two, verse 11. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into the wine, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Then we read in today's passage, verse four, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. This sickness will not end in death. Death in biblical times is was different to how we understand it and, and actually determine it today. Assurance of death basically only came from decomposition of the body. There were many records where they thought someone had died, so they go through the process of anointing them in perfumes and wrapping their body and maybe placing them in a tomb for the person to, had not been fully dead and resuscitate to some degree and hang on, they're, they're still alive. That, that was not uncommon in those days, particularly for poor people who couldn't, afford, who couldn't afford to be embalmed, couldn't afford their own significant tomb or cave or burial place. And so it was not uncommon in those days to have someone, I, I think they're dead, can't really detect a heartbeat or breathing. Let's assume they're dead. Let's wrap them up. Oh, hang on, they're not dead. Imagine that. But what was sure 
was that at about the two and a half, the three day mark, definitely into the fourth day, the body would start decomposing. There would be a stench. And you knew the person was dead. It is not a coincidence that Jesus didn't come to Lazarus until the fourth day. He was making sure. Remember we read, he heard about Lazarus being sick. He waited two more days where he was. Then had a two-day walk. It was nearly like he meant to get there when he meant to get there. And so there's no room for skeptics or cynicism or doubters. Lazarus was dead. See, this account in John's Gospel is about Jesus. Lazarus is a side issue. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus having power over sin and death. The last and greatest enemy, death. The one thing none of us can avoid, the consequence of living in a broken, sinful, fallen world is death. And Jesus is glorified by demonstrating that he has power over death something that every single person at that time knew only belonged to God. God was the only one who had any power over death. And here's Jesus demonstrating, no, I do. I have power over death. So we're going to pause. It's trivia time. All right? And I didn't get prizes, I'm sorry. So all you can get now is the the um, good feeling of knowing the answer. All right, for those playing at home too, um, who knows what the longest chapter of the Bible is? Longest chapter, what is it? Psalm 119, I heard that somewhere, yes. For a bonus prize, how many verses in Psalm 119? 176 verses. Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible. Shortest chapter in the Bible, what is it? Huh? No, shortest chapter? Psalm 117. Two verses in Psalm 117. Longest verse in the Bible. This is a bit harder. Who knows the longest verse in the Bible? According to the NIV, there's 72 words in it. No one knows this one. I had to look this up. I didn't know this one. Esther. Esther chapter 8, verse 9. Longest verse in the Bible. And Mike, you've already given the answer. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Verse 35 of chapter 11 that we've just been reading. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, the few times I've heard about Jesus wept being unpacked, it's been this sort of thing. It proves that Jesus was fully human. It proves that Jesus was really sad because his friend that he loved had died. Um, it proves that Jesus can relate to us in our pain and our, uh, and our I'll make this up now, our, our pain and our, I think I do need that one. <laughs> I'm lost here. Um, thank you. And that's how it's always been presented to me, that Jesus... Yeah, it proves he was really him. And that could well be true, but it doesn't make sense. Think about it. Here's Jesus 
His great friend Lazarus, he gets told, is sick. He chooses to wait two more days. Before he even left where he was, he says to his disciples, now he's not actually asleep, he's actually dead. So Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead before he even takes the two-day journey to go and meet him. Jesus knows, because we just heard his prayer, he knows, God, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for doing what I know you're always going to do. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would he be weeping that Lazarus is dead? If he knew that one, Lazarus was going to die, and two, he was going to raise him from the dead. don't know. But maybe... Maybe there's more to it than this. And what we realise as we read something in English, remember the Gospels were written originally in Greek, and when we translate Greek words into English words, we can sometimes lose a bit of the nuance and the meaning. I want us to look at this. So here's the passage. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Now, this phrase, deeply moved, is probably better put as he became indignant, he became anguished, he became angered. So when we look at the amplified version, it'll be on your screen, look at this. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews who had come with her also sobbing, he was deeply moved in spirit to the point of anger at the sorrow caused by death and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, come and see see how he loved him as a close friend. But some of them said, could he not have... Um, you know, who opened the blind man's eyes, kept this man from dying. So Jesus, again deeply moved within to the point of anger, approached the tomb. It was a cave and a boulder was lying against it. What made Jesus anguished and angered at this point? It's more than the fact that his friend Lazarus had died. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the answers as to why he was angered and anguished here. Maybe it was the lack of integrity amongst the mourners because back in those days when someone died, you could, you could even, if you had some means, hire professional mourners and wailers. People who would just come and hang around you and cry and wail and sing sad songs. That's how they dealt with death in that culture, in that context. Very different to how we deal with it. And maybe there's this sense from Jesus that this is just a bit fake. Maybe it's the lack of faith for his disciples and the others who were around about what he could actually do. Because remember, both sisters said to him, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Maybe it's the effects of sin and death on his creation that just anguished him. Maybe it's knowing that he was calling Lazarus back into this broken world when Lazarus had been freed from it. Maybe that anguished him. I don't know. The scripture doesn't say. I'm only guessing. But what we do know is this. 
And here is the fifth I am statement in John's gospel. We do know Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus seems to demonstrate that he understands how tragic death is in his created order. It was never the intention. And when we read the bookends, when we read Genesis, human beings were never designed to die. And when we read Revelation, that's what we're heading to, a physical world with physical resurrected bodies where there is no more death and pain and sorrow and decay. But we're living in this bit in between, between the original perfect creation and where we're heading when, when Jesus renews all things. But in the middle, we've got this thing called death and Jesus weeps at the pain and destruction that death causes in our lives and in our created order and, and the separation it causes. He understands that death is a consequence of sin, that death brings separation from our earthly existence with others. He understands that it's universal for all people. It can come at any time and it just hurts. It's a pain like no other. But death has been defeated. Jesus defeats it himself when he dies and rises again, but he's showing his power over it even before that happens through the person of Lazarus. He teaches us and demonstrates for us, for those who believe that death actually holds no fear. He has conquered death. He has robbed it of its power. This story of Lazarus is about Jesus, God in the flesh, God incarnate, God being the victor over all that is broken in our world, even the worst thing that is available to us in our lived experience, which is death. So I want to read a passage out of Paul's writing where Paul unpacks this whole picture in the book of Romans. And I'm going to read a paraphrase of it because I wanted to put it in my own words and I started to do that and I thought someone way better than me has already done this. So, so I'm going to read from the message um, from Romans chapter 5. Listen to this theme of sin and death and life that Paul unpacks in his letter to the Romans. Won't be on your screen, just listening. Romans 5 starting in verse 12. Paul writes this, he says, you know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma that we're in? First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone, but to the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominates the landscape from Adam through to Moses. Even those who didn't sin like Adam did, obeying, disobeying a specific command, still had to experience the termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this mess, 
also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There is no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, absolute life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift that one man, Jesus Christ, provides? Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all in this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. So that's where Moses fits in. Moses was given the law and the law just showed us that we are lawbreakers because there is sin. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. Jesus demonstrates in his own life, death and resurrection this very thing. But even before he did that, Jesus was demonstrating through Lazarus that I am God and I have defeated death. It is no longer the, has the final say in your world, in your life, in your experience. There is a life available to you in Jesus that he freely offers and freely gives because of who he is, not because of what we've done. So as we wrap up, and we're wrapping up today the first half of John's Gospel, we're going to take a pause through Christmas and January, and we're going to pick up John's Gospel again probably February next year where we'll do the sort of second half. I want to remind you why we started this in the first place back in July. This series in John is an exploration into equipping one another as the church so that you may believe. And so that others who do not yet know Jesus may believe. And so that we can find common ground with those around us and share with them the hope that we have in Jesus. There are three things we want to achieve out of this. We want John's gospel to point us in the direction where it reveals reality. What is most true in the world? And that truth we've discovered is a person, Jesus Christ. John's gospel will help us pursue reality in our own lives, in our own lived existence. And John's gospel will help us um, to equip us to share that reality with others. That's why we're doing this. 
so that we would believe in what is most real. We would pursue that with everything we've got as individuals and as a church community and then we would be equipped to share that with those around us who don't know that reality yet. Our contention is that the gospel is good news. Good news points to that which is true and eternal and real. And I I don't know about you, but I have grown, I reckon, heaps over the last six months as we've looked into John's gospel into really understanding who Jesus is, who he calls me to be, who he calls us to be, and the message that he wants us to carry into the world around us so that people would believe just like is John's intention when he wrote this. Let me pray for us. So God, I thank you that you have given us scripture, you have given us words, you have given us enough revelation for us to know Jesus, for us to believe in Jesus, for us to align our lives with Jesus, for us to follow Jesus, for us to be shaped by Jesus, for us to share Jesus with others, because that is what you are doing in your world. And so God, I ask that you would take us and shape us and mould us as a community of people to be your church, to be on your mission with you, to be sharing your reality with those who aren't aware of it yet, and to be living it in such a way that people will be drawn to you and attracted to you because they see your character and your nature in your church. And God, would you help us in that in every way? Amen.